God, we thank you and praise you for this moment that we get to enjoy just to gather together under the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for our time as we look to your word. Lord, we confess that what we need most are not self-help principles right now. Lord, what we need most is not a teaching of performing for you in order to earn your love. But God, more than anything, what we need this morning is to encounter a person. We want to encounter and experience Jesus Christ who is exalted, the one who has made grace available. And so Lord, I pray that you, by the Spirit of God, would be our teacher this morning, that you would guide us into the truth, that you would fill us with illumination and spiritual understanding by your Spirit so we might understand the text and be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we do conclude our sermon series on Shaped by the Gospel, and this is not only a church core value of ours, but this is also one of our church-wide priorities uh, for 2021, that we want to be so centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ that it leads to not only gospel believing, but also gospel living. That's been one of the, the big things I've been trying to emphasize over the last couple of weeks is that believing in the gospel is not just a ticket into heaven, but that there is a certain kind of power that comes from the gospel that can shape and determine how you live your life. And I believe that happens uh, when you understand how to do three things. When you understand how to adore the God of the gospel, when you understand how to articulate the gospel and learn how to speak the language of the gospel in everyday conversation. And then thirdly, when you understand how to apply the gospel to every area of your life. Now, I've been trying to make an important distinction over the last couple of weeks, and that is between the gospel message or the, the content of the gospel that saves us compared to the application of the gospel or the, the implications of the gospel that shapes our behavior and determines how we live. And I think that uh, distinction is very important because far too often the gospel becomes kind of this, this junk drawer within Christianity. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but so often we basically throw every aspect within the Christian life into this drawer and call it the gospel. And I think there's a danger there because that will lead to confusion over what saves us and what kind of power is available for us now to live in light of the gospel being true. And so today, we're not going to spend so much time on the content of the gospel because we have over the last couple of weeks, but this morning, we're going to talk about gospel application. And I was tempted uh, as I was kind of uh, preparing for this sermon really wanted to do 10 mini sermons in one and basically take uh, singleness and marriage and parenting and, uh, and, and work and suffering and finances and all these different areas of our lives and show us how the gospel impacts those areas of our lives. Well, I'm not going to do that. We can't be here all day. We've got a mem member meeting tonight. And so rather, uh, I'm going to show us principles of grace that's found in the gospel and then I'm going to ask you to take these principles and throughout today, throughout the next you know, week or two, to then apply them to whatever area of your life that, need, that needs those principles to be applied. 
All right, so we're going to basically preach this sermon together. I'm going to give you these principles of grace, and then you're going to do the work of application throughout uh, this week. So I'm just going to walk through this passage starting in verse 11, and I'm going to point out the different multifaceted impact of grace found in the gospel. So let's begin in verse 11 here. The first thing I want to point out is that grace makes salvation possible. All right, I was tempted to kind of skip over uh, verse 11 and, and just jump into verse 12, but I think this verse is so foundational to understand in order to get what Paul's talking about in verses 12 through 14. What verse 11 is all about is Paul announcing the reality that salvation is now available because of this grace that has now appeared. All right, this grace that Paul's talking about is Jesus. Jesus has appeared, and through his death, through his resurrection, has made salvation available for those who turn from their, sin, from their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, Paul, throughout Titus, uh, unpacks what grace is all about found in the gospel and how it saves us. If you just let your eyes wander down to chapter 3, look at uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, about Paul explaining grace. He says, uh, in verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right, this grace that's found in the gospel is available to save any and all people. All right, I have in my Bible underlined this phrase in verse 11, for all people. I think that's really important to understand because Paul's not just saying that salvation is available, grace is available for all ethnicities of Jews and Gentiles. He's not just saying it's available for, for men and women or for the educated and the uneducated, or for the rich and the poor. No, Paul is saying that grace is available for the religious-looking people and also for the great sinners. That grace is available for, for even those who are so exhausted by trying to clean up themselves morally on their own power, grace is available for them. That grace is available for those who understand that it doesn't matter how hard they try to scrub off the dirtiness of their sin on their own power, there's no way they can remove sin. Grace is available for them. That grace is available for all people, for those who are broken, for those who have come to the end of themselves, for those who are sinners and they know it. Grace is available for them. A grace is available for those who understand their need for grace and who are fully dependent upon the mercy of God. Grace is available for them. A grace is available for those who want nothing more in this life than to hear these four life-transforming words spoken by God over their life that your sins are forgiven. Grace is available for them. Like, I love this phrase. I, I feel like this phrase is specifically written for those who believe the lie that they were too far gone for God to save them. That grace is available for them. Grace is available for all who believe in Jesus. 
And I think what Paul is saying here in verse 11 is when that grace, the grace of Jesus, the grace of the gospel appears in your life, when it tracks you down, when it, when it finds your address, so to speak, and it knocks down the door of your heart, it brings with it forgiveness and salvation for all who believe. Look, church, that is amazingly good news. That is what we basically depend upon for our salvation is this grace that is found in Jesus. But what I love about this passage is that Paul doesn't end there. Paul goes on in, in verses 12 through 14 and shows us that grace also shapes how we live our lives. See, grace is not just this thing that, that brings forgiveness. It's not just the ticket into heaven. Grace has a power that can determine how we live our lives. Look at verse 12 here. He, he talks about these three things that grace does in shaping how we live our lives that's all centered around this word training, right? If you, if you notice the connection here, verse 11, grace has appeared, brings salvation, but then you go into verse 12 and it says, training us. What's training us? It's the same grace that saved us. This grace is training us to do three things in verses 12, 13, and 14. See, grace saves, but also grace shapes. It doesn't just pronounce forgiveness. Grace rolls up its sleeves and it gets dirty. Grace begins to fight against every graceless enemy of our souls. And I love this word that Paul uses for training. This is the, in the Greek word, it means to, to actually instruct or to teach or to uh, tutor. And you almost get this visual from Paul in these verses of grace appearing in our lives, us receiving it by faith. And when that happens, it's like God puts us into this lifelong classroom of sanctification or spiritual growth, looking more and more like Jesus. And guess who the teacher is? The teacher is grace. And so I think what Paul is showing us here is that throughout the course of our lives, God uses grace to hold up these different lessons in our lives, the lesson of, of singleness or marriage or parenting or suffering or finances or purity or, or work. And grace being our teacher is instructing us and training us how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and to apply it into these different areas of our lives. I remember growing up as a student in, in school, like many of you, whenever our regular teacher couldn't show up for the day and we had a, a substitute teacher that day, it was always very exciting. Right? It's like, okay, what kind, of, what kind of sub are we getting today? Are we getting the kind of the substitute teacher who, uh, who really just wants to be liked by the students and like not, they're not going to teach the lesson, you know, probably not going to enforce the rules. You can kind of talk to your classmates all day, kind of the fun substitute teacher. Or are you going to get the kind of substitute teacher who, uh, who really doesn't have authority a lot in their lives? So now that they do have authority, they're kind of laying down the law, right? Like they're almost more strict than the regular teacher. They're teaching that lesson for that day. They're teaching tomorrow's lesson that day. And they're really making sure that you're following all the rules, right? I remember as a student, depending on the substitute teacher, that, that teacher had the power to shape the entire classroom. All right, now I want you to have that visual in mind, that, that kind of experience, 
And I want to ask you this question this morning. In this lifelong classroom of sanctification, of looking more and more like Jesus, what kind of teacher are you allowing to shape you and to instruct you and to train you? Is it the teacher of grace in the gospel or has that teacher of grace been kicked out and now there's a different substitute teacher who's teaching you something else? I wonder, could it be that you have maybe the substitute teacher in this lifelong classroom of spiritual growth Maybe you have the substitute teacher of legalism. Maybe this substitute teacher is teaching you the lesson that if you don't follow all of the rules in Christianity, if you don't obey, 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 then God is going to stop loving you. Or wonder if you have maybe a different substitute teacher, maybe the teacher of licentiousness, the, the teacher that stands up there and says, you can sin. It's okay to sin. Don't take sin too seriously. I mean, God will forgive you anyways. Or maybe you have the substitute teacher who stands in front of you and says, you don't even belong here. You don't belong in this classroom, in God's family. Your past is too dirty. You have, you have too much sin going on in your lives. You, you can't possibly be in this classroom of God's family. Like, I think there's a, a danger that we need to be aware of that I think many Christians, most Christians are okay with the reality of grace appearing and saving us and putting us into this classroom of growth. But I think that far too often, many Christians are not being trained and taught and shaped by the teacher of God's grace, but they are being taught by a different kind of teacher that goes against the gospel of Jesus. And I think that is a danger that you need to be aware of, of what you are allowing to shape you and train you as you pursue growth in the Christian life. Now, I think what Paul does here, is he masterfully calls us and woos us back to having grace be our teacher in this classroom by showing us three lessons of grace, three things that I think grace wants to teach us in this passage. Here's the first thing here that I want, I want to show us in verse 12a, is that grace teaches us to say no to sin. Look at verse 12. Paul says, training. Remember, this is about grace. Grace training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, uh, ungodliness is this idea of having an irreverence for God, lacking all of God. Worldly passions is referring to lusting after the things of this world. And what Paul is showing us here is that grace actually teaches us to say no to sin. But one thing I wanna highlight here is that this word for renounce is a severe word. You need to understand that. In fact, this is the same word that Jesus used in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny or renounce himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay, so understand this. When, when we deny or when we renounce ungodliness, we are taking something that used to be precious to us, right? We, we loved our sin. Sin brought us pleasure. Sin brought us purpose. Sin brought us all of these things. 
But when we renounce it, we're taking something that was precious and we are now putting it to death, right? Some translations, if you have the NIV in front of you, translates this verse this way, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But this no of grace is not the kind of no that's calm as if you turn down a wedding invite. When you RSVP, no, you do that so calmly and coolly and just kind of, you know, you're so relaxed in that decision. No, this no is the difficult no of self-denial. It is the refusal to gratify the inner beast that is barking for satisfaction, right? God meets us in that space and through his grace in those moments of temptation, he uses that grace to train us to meet our temptations at the door of our hearts, hear its dreadful pleas, and grace teaches us to say no and to decline that invitation, all right? And that is a work of grace in our lives. See, I think some confuse the teacher of grace as one who stands in the classroom of sanctification and gives us license to sin all the more so grace can abound. In fact, some will even caution pastors not to preach too much on grace or else you're gonna have a a congregation that's sinning all of the time. And yet, according to Jude chapter one, verse four, that mindset is perverting the grace of God. In fact, Jude chapter one, verse four says this. It says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people, and notice this, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Or or to put it uh, the way that Paul words it in Romans 6, he asks the question, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, because it's grace that, that opens the eyes of our hearts to see the destructive emptiness of sin and trains us to decline the invitation to participate in that sin. A.W. Pink describes the the work of grace in our lives this way. says that grace in the heart prevents us from abusing grace in the head, that it delivers us from making grace the lackey of sin. Where the grace of God brings salvation to the soul, it works effectually. And what is it that grace teaches Practical holiness. Grace does not eradicate ungodliness and worldly lusts, but it causes us to deny them by the impulsive power of gratitude, by love's desire to please the Savior, by instilling a determination to walk worthy of the calling to which we are called. Just to illustrate this point for a moment, I'm at the point in my life and this is hard to admit, but I'm at the point in my life, this season of my life right now, where I actually enjoy washing the dishes. I'm just in that season where like, there are very few things that, that I can kind of control and that I can have immediate results about, right? Uh, I'm parenting young kids, you know, I'm pastoring a church, and the immediate results are, are few and far between. But man, taking a dish that was dirty and in a matter of moments, cleaning it, and now it's clean like that, that brings a level of satisfaction. So I've been enjoying doing the dishes lately. 
Now, one thing that's really annoying to me about doing the dishes is when I have this cooking pan that is just covered in grease and food, and it's just stuck there, right? And in that moment, I've learned, I've got two decisions to make. Option A is I can look at that pan that's covered in grease, and I can say, you know what? I'm just going to tackle this right now, and I'm going to scrub, scrub, scrub as hard as I can. I'm, I'm sweating. My forearms are burning. I'm going to be sore a little bit afterwards, right? This is my workout for the day, but I'm just going to tackle this pan and get it done, right? That, that's option A. Option B is, is to take that pan, see the grease that's covered in there, and, and add some water, add some dish soap, right, and, and just let it soak, Right, let it soak for a few minutes, come back to it, and, and, and the process of cleaning that pan now is, is rather enjoyable. It, it's easier, and, and I can't necessarily prove this, but it feels like it does a more thorough job cleaning that, that pan after I'm done with it. Well, I want you to follow this. Uh, if our lives are like cooking pans, and if sin is, is what gets stuck to the pan of our lives, that I want to remind us this morning that we have available to us through Jesus a type of soaking power that is made possible in the grace of the gospel. That I think far too often there are Christians who based on their own determination, based on their own hard work, based on their own sweats and, and energy, are trying to scrub, 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 scrub as hard as they can to remove the sin on their own power when there is dish soap in the gospel that is available for you because of Jesus. And look, what grace does, grace trains us not necessarily to scrub harder, but grace trains us to soak longer in Jesus. Because look, the, the longer that you are soaking and meditating and enjoying the beauty and the power of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for you in your place, the more that that is training you to say no to the sin that he died for, that he died to set you free from. See, grace, I think, trains us to say no to sin. Secondly, though, another lesson of grace that we find in this passage is that grace teaches us what to long for. So when grace appears, it not only saves us, it not only trains us uh, what to say no to, but it also trains us of what to say yes to and, and what our hearts long for. Notice verse 12, the second half there, grace is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, now, how does grace train us to long for righteousness, to long for godliness? It's because of verse 13, that grace is also training us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the connection that I want to make for us this morning is that our longings, our cravings, what we want follows what we place our hope in. All right, whatever the object of our hope is, our desires follow that. Like for example, if, if you place your hope in a particular relationship to satisfy you, your longings will follow that. 
If you place your hope in a certain kind of job or making a certain amount of money or a certain possession or having a certain kind of body image to satisfy you, your longings are going to follow whatever the object of your hope is in, right? If your hope is in the fact that IU will actually hire a competent head basketball coach, your longings are going to follow that object of your hope, and that hope may or may never be realized. Let's be honest, right? What Paul is telling us here this morning is that grace is what trains our hearts to long for Jesus by ensuring that our ultimate hope is found in him as we wait for him to return. Look, I think we just need to be reminded this morning that you can direct where your hope goes, and as a result, you can determine what you long for, right? There are too many Christians who feel like they are at the mercy of their circumstances, that they are at the mercy of their emotions and their feelings to determine where their hope goes, that they're at the mercy of, of what other people think of them based on where their hope goes and their longings. I just want to remind us this morning that you are able to tell where your hope goes. And Paul is exhorting us here to allow grace to train us in funneling our hope down to the object and the person of Jesus Christ, because your longings will follow where you put your and I think this is powerful because, look, you and I, we are driven by what we want. We are driven by what we long for. We are driven by whatever we put our hope in. And yet grace meets us in that space and trains our hearts to long for Jesus by putting our ultimate hope in him. Look, grace reminds us that Jesus is always better than, than whatever the world is trying to offer us. I'll just go back to the illustration of the classroom. Look, if, if grace is our teacher, grace is not standing in front of that classroom and is trying to just teach us every single day about only focusing on our will. Right? Grace is not standing at the front of the classroom yelling and screaming at us, do, 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 obey, 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 perform, perform, perform. No, the predominant lesson of grace in this classroom of sanctification is to enjoy Jesus, to, to delight in Jesus, to worship Jesus, to, to, to crave Jesus. Right? In this classroom, there are posters of Jesus on every wall. Like the object lesson in every, in every lesson of grace is Jesus. Like Jesus is, is on the chalkboard, just a big poster of Jesus Christ. Why? Because nothing will captivate and capture your heart more than seeing Jesus exalted and lifted up. And when Jesus has that place in your heart, and that's a work of grace, it will shape and drive how you live. You will live upright. You will live self-control. You will live godly life because Jesus is on the throne of your heart. Like, I think that's why Paul describes Jesus as talking about the glorious and, and the great God and the Savior of our Jesus because seeing him in that light will shape and determine your behavior. Grace teaches us what to long for. 
And then the third lesson here in this passage is that I think grace also teaches us that we belong to God. We belong to, I love verse 14. He says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice the language of identity here. Look, because of the grace of Jesus in the gospel, we are a people, we are his possession that belong to God. And this is all true because of the grace found in the gospel of Jesus. I think this is really important in shaping how we live our lives because when you understand who you are and when you understand whose you are, you begin to live out of a place of security rather than fear. When you understand that you belong to God, that your identity is in Jesus, then you will understand that nothing will snatch you out of his hand. And that removes fear. That that removes this thought of, man, if I sin too much, he's gonna stop loving me. Like if I blow it here, if I, if I continue to mess up, he's no longer going to accept me in his family. Grace removes that fearful thought because grace reminds us that grace was never given to us because we've earned it. And grace is never something that we lose if we blow it. I love grace because grace is that message through the gospel that reminds us that you are not trying to perform for God by your good deeds. You already have that acceptance fully in Jesus. And so out of that reality, you can now pursue a life of good works. You belong to God. Look, it's, it's grace that, that puts its arm around us and says, you belong to God forever and nothing will change that. Like I think one of the most transforming truths of the gospel, something I've been soaking on the last few weeks, is this reality, that if you are in Christ, God delights in you today. God delights in you because of Christ. I just want you to think about that for a moment, that God doesn't just love you, which we talked about last week, which is unbelievable, but God likes you because of Christ. Do you know the difference? Like he doesn't just put up with you, but God actually enjoys you. That, that, that God is, is not up in heaven who's looking down upon you with his arms crossed, shaking his head at you, maybe wagging his finger. That's not the disposition of God if you are in Christ. God is smiling at you. He's delighting in you. Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17 says that God is singing over you. God delights in you today. And that is a game changer. Like that, that means that we can pursue obedience out of this enjoyment that God has for us and not out of fear. Why? Because you belong to God forever. You are his possession. You are his people because of Christ. God delights in you. Well, as we close this morning, again, I was very tempted to preach 10 mini sermons. And, um, and yet this morning, I just want to close 
by providing, I think, three really important practical principles that are true because of the gospel that, again, I want you to try to apply to, to the different areas of your life, okay? These are three, I think, realities that the gospel changes um, that impact and shape how we live, all right? Let's look at the first one here. I think the gospel changes our motives. The gospel impacts the why we do what we do. I think before we believe in the gospel, before we live by the power of the gospel, uh, the, the reason why we are obeying God is usually out of a sense of trying to earn something from God. Like we're trying to earn his favor, earn his love, earn his acceptance, or, or maybe try to put God in our debt because of our obedience. Now he has to give us blessings. And yet the gospel changes all that. The, the gospel impacts our motives by changing it from earning to actually enjoying him. All right, so it's not earning something, it's enjoying someone who is God. And so you're a faithful spouse, you're a faithful employee, you're a faithful parent, not to earn something from God, but because you're enjoying Jesus as you're living in obedience. So the question I wanna ask you this morning related to the motives is, why are you trying to obey God? Like, why are you trying to do what is right? What's, what's driving you and what are your motivations? Why are you trying to be a faithful single? Why are you trying to be a faithful spouse? Why are you trying to be a faithful employee? What is at your motive level? And is it any different than unbelievers? Right, that's the space that you have to do the work to apply the gospel and live out in your life. Secondly, though, another, I think, really practical principle is that the gospel impacts the manner by which we live. So not only the motives, not only the why, but also the how. And, and it changes us from looking like the world to, to now living a godly life. And the way that we do this is that we take all of the truths that God demonstrated in the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we now apply in our own lives. All right, so for example, God in the gospel demonstrated patience towards you for your salvation. Therefore, through the power of the Spirit, you are now called to demonstrate patience with those around you, All right? God was forgiving towards you in the gospel. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are called to be forgiving to those in your life. God was gracious to you in your salvation. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are called to being gracious to those around you, right? So we take these truths demonstrated in the gospel of, of Christ and through the power of the Spirit and his grace, we now apply to these different areas of our lives. Again, another good question to ask yourself is, how am I, fill in the blank, how am I parenting differently because the gospel is true, right? Or, or how am I working in the workplace differently from unbelievers around me? How am I handling my finances? How am I suffering in trials differently than unbelievers because the gospel is true, right? Like you've got to do the work of connecting the dots there and applying the gospel in those different areas. The gospel changes the how. And then thirdly, another really important aspect is that the gospel changes the goal. In every 
area of our lives, from it being me-centered to now God-centered. In every area, the, the goal is that God would receive glory, that God would be made much of, and that you would look more and more like Jesus. And that's a very different goal than what the world uh, has before us. The, the world's goal in all of these different areas, in marriage, parenting, work, is, is all about immediate gratification. It's about what can make me most happy? What can bring me most comfort? What can improve my reputation? How can I accumulate more stuff? How can my kids be better behaved or more successful, right? The gospel has a different target in parenting, in your marriage, in your workplace, with your finances, in all these ways. It's to glorify God and for you to look more and more like Jesus. So again, questions to ask. What's my goal in parenting? Sit down with your spouse, ask that question. What's our our target right now? Or what's the goal in, in our marriage? Or what's the goal? If you're going through a trial right now, what's the goal right now in suffering? What's the goal of, of my finances and, and allowing the gospel to shape and direct your life? Look, the gospel is not just something that saves us. The gospel is something that shapes us. And it does so by adoring the God of the gospel, by learning the language of the gospel so we're articulating it, and by applying it to these different areas of our lives. Look, the more centered your life is on the gospel of Jesus, the more you're gonna live like Christ for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we just thank you, God, for the power that is found in the gospel. God, we wanna be a church that is firmly centered on this gospel. Lord, we are just amazed that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us from the pit of our own sin. God, we did not deserve your grace and yet you have lavished it on us. And now, God, as we live kind of in this this classroom of sanctification, Lord, help us to submit ourselves to your grace. Help us, God, to do the hard work of applying the gospel to the different areas of our lives. Lord, we don't just wanna be saved by your grace and now to live on our own power. No, we want to live by the power you you have made available through Jesus and through the spirit that resides in us. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.